From the beautiful city of Hollywood, we bring you Film Forward, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. Hey, hey, welcome to Film Forward, everybody, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival. We've got a great guest for you here today, and he's here to discuss the new HBO documentary, Icon, The Restless Billionaire. We're honored to be joined by the film's director, Bruce David Klein. Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Honored to be here, truly. So, Mr. Klein, I'm going to be 100% frank with you. The stock market, not my bag. When, when, when people start talking to me about the stock market, my, my brain just you know starts humming a pop song. But this film had me totally enthralled. I learned a lot. I mean, it's a huge credit to A, your filmmaking, and B, Carl Icahn is such an enigmatic figure, and he's just so fascinating, and I couldn't help but like get completely engrossed in this story. Talk to us about why and when you decided to make a film about Carl Icahn. Well, first of all, thank you for that. That's actually, it sounds like you kind of experienced the journey that I experienced. You know, one of the things is I don't like to kind of be an expert in any one area when I'm diving into a film. I kind of like to be the audience where I'm just super curious. I want to learn more. I think the stock market and Wall Street is something for those who don't know it or understand a lot about it. You feel like you should know about it. You feel like a lot of people talk about it. There's a lot of really interesting things that happen. A lot of people make a lot of money doing it. Right. And you're kind of curious. And, you know, Icon provided me from the beginning a kind of almost like a Rorschach test to project onto him a lot of really interesting issues about capitalism, about corporations, about the wage gap, as an example. And I think the main kind of purpose from the beginning was I am drawn to people with unique DNA and especially talents that are a little enigmatic, as you said. You know, everyone knows or many people know Icon is a multi-billionaire. He's extremely successful. He's feared. He's a great negotiator. But why? You know, right. what is it about his unique makeup, his extreme complexity that kind of allows him to surpass? And that was kind of interesting for me. It's not like he's the best of the best. He's like beyond the best of the best in the financial world. If you judge him in terms of success within those rules of that world, he is far ahead of anybody. And the question is, why? What is that unique formula within him that allows him to, you know, time after time get into different industries? I mean, it's mind blowing. It's like, you know, the, the auto repair industry and Netflix, the, you know, eBay, an airline with TWA and giant oil companies. I mean, he seems to understand all of these. And one of the things early on that really made me lean in was I was talking to a very well-known financial reporter and I said, you know, a big criticism of Carl is that he comes in, he really doesn't understand companies. Well, you know, what does he know about Netflix? What does he know about Apple? What does he know about eBay? What does he know about a Texaco oil company? And yet he comes across and he says, 
the people who are running this company don't know what they're doing. That's why it's doing poorly. It's not productive. And of course, the natural response from many of the CEOs and the management teams are, well, what does he know about oil? What does he know? We're in this every day. And this kind of Wall Street reporter leaned in and said, but he does know. That's the crazy thing. Right. It's time and time again in all of these different industries, there's something, and that ultimately is his unique gift, this kind of formulation of all of these little bits and pieces that I'm sure we'll talk about that kind of come together in this person with this incredibly intuitive insight quickly into companies and he sees things that nobody else sees. The great example is eBay and PayPal. eBay and PayPal were once one company, obviously eBay owned PayPal. And he looked at it knowing probably not a lot about how PayPal works and what PayPal does and eBay, you know, the details of it. And then by looking at the financial reports, by Drawing from his years of experience with Instinct, he said, these two companies should be separate. eBay is a very exciting, actually old school company in terms of how it makes its money. It makes its money in pennies on commissions, whereas PayPal, he thought, was this really explosively exciting company. And he made this announcement. He got attacked for it. Everybody thought he was crazy. Why separate them? Carl Icahn's just trying to make money. It turns out that after fighting them for three years and then refusing to split it, after he kind of sold his stock in eBay, they actually split and PayPal went through the roof in valuation, making a lot of stockholders rich. In fact, so much so that when I was talking to Bill Gates as we made this film, he actually said that is one of the best examples of how right Icon was. It wasn't he was right. He was mind-blowingly right that those <laughs> right. two companies should be separate. And, and you know, this is from Bill Gates, you know? So, so it, that carried a lot of weight with me. So that was kind of early on. It was like, wow, this guy does some interesting magic tricks. How does he do them? And that's kind of what immediately sucked me in. Yeah, magic tricks is a great way to put it. When the concept of the film was pitched to Carl, was he immediately open to it? Did it take some persuading? <laughs> no, no, Carl is not immediately open to anything. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I think you see in the film, I mean, everything with him, he enjoys it. Everything with him is a debate. And I think that comes from his kind of philosophy background. As you know, he went to Princeton and graduated like top in his class in philosophy, won this big, you know, famous award and everything like that. He has that natural instinct to constantly question and question and then add another question, find another way. I joke, and it's not entirely untrue that Carl's the only person ever met who could literally argue in favor of, let's just say, a tree going on that side of the house. Yeah, we have to plant the tree on that side of the house. And he will, just with the force of personality and intellect, will convince you in 30 minutes that the tree has to go on that side of the house. And then he'll pause, the famous icon pause, and he'll say, 
You know, on the other hand, the other side is interesting because of this, but argue <laughs> the opposite point. Right. So, so that was so fascinating, and I got to experience that when we were discussing the potential of making a film, because I think one of the things with him is that he did not think, he did not understand, and part of this is because he doesn't watch documentaries, he didn't understand why anybody would be interested in his personal life. To him, the only thing interesting in the world is his deals, the strategy behind the deals, how he figured out an angle that nobody else saw. That's, from his point of view, what people would be excited in about because he's excited about that. Right. But he didn't understand, like, well, why do you want to film me having breakfast with my wife? You really want to film me tennis? And the debate over time was basically that I had to convince him that viewers of documentaries, when they see a character execute something that's extraordinary in, a, in the case of a deal and making $2 billion, their natural inclination at that point, their need their, their, to satisfy that audience is, well, who is this guy? How, how did, where, where did he come from? Why, how does he think like that? Why was he able to do that? And many times that the answer of that is in his past, in the childhood, in how he lives his life. People want to know everything about him. And I, as a filmmaker, you know, he, he didn't understand that necessarily at the beginning. I'm like, I'm obsessed with you for everything. At one point I asked him, like, what's your favorite drink? What's your favorite novel? What I mean, I want right. to know everything right. about him because that's the documentary process. And so that was the debate over time. And debate with him is not a quick back and forth. Debate with him is a three and a half hour phone conversation at midnight. <laughs> uh, it is a you know call out of the blue while you're you just ordered your uh, dinner. Uh, you know he is very up for the debate and wants to discuss it. And we met and we talked on the phone. And and one of the ways that we kind of got in was that we started filming with him. So I said before this was before HBO, and and I said you know. Why don't we just come out? We'll just bring a camera, me and one guy. And we'll just talk to you. We'll film whatever you're doing. He's like, all right. So finally agreed. And we kind of spent a couple of hours with him in his Hampton house when, of course, he was working the whole time because he works nonstop. And, you know, we kind of put together kind of like a little scene or whatever just to show him like, you know, this is how it would play out, you know, how a typical scene would play out. And he was like, yeah, I don't know, whatever. I said, I think people will really like, that. well, I don't know. I said, well, you know, I'm going to go out and pitch it and see what happens. So immediately, you know, HBO was really the first pitch and they immediately understood that he was a unique character that to have access to a billionaire of that level on such a, a personal, intimate kind of basis is really extraordinary. So they were all in. And I think once HBO came in, that kind of gave us the rubber stamp where he's like, he's smart enough to realize like, all right, I don't know about this uh, director guy, but all right, well, HBO, they know a lot about this. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, they, they think this thing is good. So all right, we'll try this out and, you know, whatever. So after that, 
we spent many, many, many years, honestly, like uh, upwards of three years. The main part of it was kind of 12 to 18 months where we shot with him well over 100 hours, interviews and see intimate scenes, some of which you see in the movie with him just having breakfast with his wife, which is so revealing in many ways, you know. Yeah, I think that those elements are some of the most fascinating. And, you know, I think one of the most fascinating things about Icon, and you explore it so deftly in the film, is the dichotomy of being one of the richest men in the world, but at the same time, like, kind of being relatable. Uh, You know, like, he grew up from very humble beginnings. He worked hard. His relationship with his wife, like, looks lovely like they're like giving each other like smack talk back and forth which is like <laughs> totally relatable um and then you know for for a billionaire he seems far more human than you'd expect but he's also a billionaire who works on wall street so with that comes all of the appropriate criticisms you know what was your take on on that kind of dichotomy as you were living breathing icon for a few years yeah, and, and that's a that's an important word that you bring up, dichotomy, because really that, as we bring out in the film, started from the very, very beginning, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, if you think this was a, a kind of street kid from Queens, from Far Rockaway, grew up very humble background, and then suddenly, somehow, he starts emerging fairly early in school as this kid who is really freaking smart. It's like, what? Like he takes these tests and suddenly he does, you know, the best in, in Queens, you know, on them. And then when he, he took the boards again, he blew it away. And then suddenly he got into Princeton and he got into Harvard, Yale and Princeton. And I think that clash, that dichotomy between the street kid who believes that you know, don't trust anybody. Everyone's out to get you. You got to be on your toes 24 seven. You have to think smarter, faster. You have to work harder than the next guy. That plus the clash of this super elitist, you know, uh, uh, university, Princeton at the time had very few Jews. He was an outsider. And the idea that he would be in a sense polished through that by being the kind of uh, student of some of the great philosophy minds of its day. And suddenly his mind is like fine-tuned and polished. And that clash, raw, frank, unpolished with, yeah, but a polished brain and an intellect and something that has gone through the rigors of logic training and everything like that, that comes across throughout. And that's why, you know, they say the sign of intelligence is somebody that can hold two different views in in their mind. That's why you get into a situation where you have one of the richest men in the world, you know, the creator of one of the largest fortunes in the world, certainly controversial in many of his deals, and a a guy who celebrates the free market and capitalism, and yet he is very worried and talks often about the wage gap. Right. and, And the wealth gap and how that could potentially lead to some, you know, societal ills. And being able to have those two things in his mind are just fascinating. So, you know, he 
tends to not trust a lot of the type of people who a typical Wall Street guy may trust, you know, lawyers and, you know, big fancy law firms and investment banker and advisors and everything like that. And yet, if there's somebody with a mind who he really, really admires and, and, you know, he'll trust that person. So he just has an unusual mind. I, I always give the example of he always says something. He will never take something as a premise, no matter how kind of anodyne and and just everyday cliche it is. So there was one time on the set when, I don't know, a crew member was telling me something about this guy and and he worked really hard and blah, blah, blah. And then he did really well. He had some big success. And I just totally offhanded said something like, I I said, well, you know what they say, the harder you work, the luckier you get, right? So an old, I think it's a Asian, uh, it might be a Chinese proverb or something. So it certainly sounds fortune cookie worthy, right? It's one of those things that many people in a conversation, you would just throw that out and they'd say, yeah, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. You're right. You know, nobody really questions it. Well, when I said that, Carl was in earshot of it. And he said, well, you know, that's not always true. <laughs> so I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, just because you're working hard doesn't mean what you're doing is the right thing to succeed. So you could be working 22 hours a day and blah, blah, blah. And, and you're just like, your mind blows out when he's saying things like, you know, you say, well, that's not fair. Well, he'll say, there's no such thing as fairness. And then first, your breath is taken away. Well, what do you mean there's no such thing as fairness? And then when you actually think about it, what does fairness mean? Fairness is always through the perspective of, of a subjective point of view, right? It's like you, what you think is fair is not what I mean. Therefore, there is no such thing as fairness. And so he's constantly kind of rethinking your basic premises, your tenets of life in a way that really challenges you. And, and you can see why, if he does that with corporations, why at some point mixed with you know intelligence and balls and money and whatever, how that could be somebody who becomes very, very successful and feared. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, one of the most gripping and thrilling parts of the film is the Herbalife story, which I remember mm-hmm. happening when, you know, when it happened, but learned a lot of new information about, you know, how, how it all went down uh, through your film. The editing and, and the music, I think, are, are so masterful in those moments. Oh, that's great. Talk to, us to about, yeah, talk to us about putting, putting that scene together because it gets the heart pumping. That's great to hear. Well, one of the big challenges with a lot of the deals that we cover, you know, as you saw, we cover Apple, we cover Herbalife, we cover uh, some of his early deals like Tappan. A lot of people may not know that, but that made him in many ways. Mm -hmm. Texaco, TWA. But with Herbalife, one of the things you, I, I learned fairly quickly as you dive into these stories is that each one of these deals are literally rabbit holes. You can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. Like at this point, the stock was at this. So the choice was either to do this or to short it here. I mean, you can go and then you have to start explaining all the nuances of these very complex financial instruments and warrants and what are you doing and blah, 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 blah. So one of the challenges is to strip these deals down to their 
each deal having one or two kind of essential storyline points. And that's why it was very, you know, they always say, you know, the hardest thing in the world is to be simple. Was it Ernest Hemingway or, or somebody, some famous writer said, they said, well, why didn't you make it shorter? And, you know, he said, well, there's, there wasn't enough time to make it shorter. <laughs> you know? and, yeah. and it's so true um, about, you know, most art, I think, but particularly, you know, with these business deals, they are all about stripping them down to an essential item. And in the Herbalife case, you know, I made the decision early on that for the audience to really enjoy it as almost a thriller, the most important thing was to clearly explain the basic clash. You know, Ackman bet that it's a fake company, that it's a, a, a pyramid scheme, and that if he thought that if he kept talking about that, the stock would crash. Okay. Icon fascinating, knew nothing about Herbalife. And then suddenly he sees Icon is betting against it. And he looks at it and says, wait a second, wait a second. They have tens of thousands of people who sell this stuff. Most of them are ambitious people with limited means and limited education. And yet this gives them a chance to make some money. So he didn't understand why Icon was kind of uh, why Ackman was spending so much time saying, this is a fraud, it's going to crash, it's going to crash. So Icon basically said, all right, well, you know what? I'm going to bet against them. I'm going to bet that the stock goes up. So framing that in a very simple terms as Ackman is betting the stock's going to go down because it's a bad company, Icon disagrees. He says the stock's going to stay the same or go up because it's a good company or because it's not bad. And that clash kind of was the, the seminal thing that drove them really for five, six, seven years. I mean, this thing was not over until maybe a year or two ago. I mean, from, from back in 2012. Right. It was an incredible story. And I think part of the reason it was so incredible because of the two characters. You have Icom, the legend. 85-year-old, well, 86, going to be 86 tomorrow, actually, or oh, wow. uh, Wednesday. And then you have Ackman, who many journalists use as kind of like the next generation Carl. Clearly, Ackman would not exist without Icon and his history in terms of how he, you know, is an activist investor and goes after companies that he thinks are poorly run. So it really was very, very interesting. They both have a lot of similarities there are some differences. They both went to Ivy League schools, you know, Ackman to Harvard, Carl to Princeton. But Carl was poor and Ackman was not. Ackman came from a bit of privilege. There were just a lot of really interesting things that had kind of the makings of a pot boiler. And then, of course, the greatest thing of all is that you could not, you know, write a movie script that kind of ended or culminated in the way this one did with a, you know, historic verbal brawl on live television <laughs> right. uh, between Icon and Ackman, which is just, it was just, the first time I heard that, it was just like draw, like, how did they do this? Right. You know, why would billionaires who literally did not have to, not only them, but 
their 500 generations of forebears <laughs> will not have to work because of how much money they have that level of wealth. Why are they worried about fighting back and forth over who's right on live TV? And, and you know, of course, hopefully the answer also comes through in the film in terms of, you know, for many of these guys, it's not the money. It's about, you know, proving that they are right. They saw something that no one else saw and that they were right and everybody was wrong. That's what kept these guys going because they don't need any money. They can't spend that much money. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My final question for you, Bruce, is, you know, as filmmakers, I think, especially with long-term projects like this, we're, we're always, we come out a little different when, when the project is done. You're living, you're breathing icon in Wall Street for, you know, three years or whatever. What do you take away from the making of this film now that it's all said and done? I think personally, I think one of the big messages, and again, to me, this is not like a high and mighty message of the film, but it maybe comes through, is this idea of be active. Don't be afraid. And and I would go even further, not just be active, but be active, especially when everyone's telling you not to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, in some ways, the kind of, meta or whatever takeaway of Carl Icahn, which is that if you believe in something and you know you're right, any issue, finance, politics, personal issues, whatever, and you believe you're right, get active and don't let up. And you will succeed if you're right. And again, that's another thing you know you learn from Carl, which is that sometimes you're wrong. And that's part of the gamble. And I think it's a gamble that he enjoys, the idea of I'm right, I'm putting down $2 billion to prove I'm right, but I know if I'm wrong, I will lose that $2 billion. And you just, again, it's about being active and taking action. And to him, when he sees a company where the CEO is making a zillion times more than the average person, when he sees that it's not productive, when he sees that there are 700 vice presidents and they probably only need 50, it drives him nuts and he gets active. Yeah. And so I think that's a really big legacy for me in the project, which is whatever you believe in, kind of be active. In more concrete terms, I think his legacy and what he kind of teaches is watch our companies. America, capitalism is all about how strong the companies are. I mean, if you think about it, they're con- what's the number one data that they ever uh, that they give in terms of economic is employment data. How many people are working? How many people are unemployed? How productive we are as, as a country is everything because that's what's going to allow us to have the money to pay for a lot of you know the goodies that we want to be able to get <laughs> out. <laughs> you right. know? But it's got to come from somewhere. And his point is it all starts with productivity. And again, like him, love him. I hope people take out of it that he is an extraordinary character with proven success, unlike many people. And that, as I said in the first question, you know, I think he provides a great Rorschach test for what you believe capitalism should be. If you think it's flawed and should be fixed, you know, his life and work kind of gives a little of that. Same thing. If you believe it's great and we should do more of it and it should be freer. I think his life also gives a, a great pitch for that. So that's to me what made it interesting and what will 
kind of, I'll carry on with me. Absolutely. And with me too, just from watching it. Icon, The Restless Billionaire. It's available to stream right now on HBO Max. It's a tremendous film. Check it out. Let us know what you think. We're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return, Bruce David Klein is going to help us out with our favorite segment, Give Me Three. Hello, I'm Sonia, and this is my Movie Minute. A few weeks ago, in the midst of the Omicron surge, Nick and I decided that in spite of the virus and the risk of possible exposure, we had to go see the film Jockey in the theater. Thankfully, we didn't get sick, but we did have the deep pleasure of seeing Jockey on the big screen. This film is so much bigger, more grand, and more beautiful than you could imagine based on the tiny budget. I mean, I seriously think that there were more producers than crew members on this movie. But they did so much with so little, and the result was a gorgeous, powerful, and perspective-changing film. The major standouts were, of course, Clifton Collins Jr. in the main role of Jackson the Jockey. He carried this movie on his proud and broken back. Molly Parker and Moises Arias are spectacular in their supporting roles as well. Special shout-out to Bryce and Aaron Dessner of The National, This is the third film scored by them that I've seen this year, the others being the excellent films Cyrano and Come On, Come On. These guys are great, and I can't wait to hear more of their work in the years to come. Jockey is still in a few theaters here in L.A. and should be available streaming soon. Check it out. That was my minute. Thanks for listening. How you doing, Jess? I'm doing real good. I'm feeling good. Just tell me what's going on. It's, it's just wear and tear. You've done some damage. You need to get yourself to a doctor. You are a doctor. I'm a horse doctor. All right, welcome back to Film Forward, everybody. We're here with writer-director Bruce David Klein. He's about to hook us up with three films that have inspired him. Mr. Klein, let's get your first one, sir. All right, number one is Clockwork Orange. For me, first of all, separate from the idea that the film just blew my fucking mind for <laughs> yeah, the right. first time. I mean, you literally, I mean, people describe the experience of watching that and then coming out and people saying, you know, what'd you think? And, and you not being able to say anything. I mean, it's that kind of uh, shocking to the core, both the storyline, the characters, the violence, the level, you know, yeah, the sex. Yes, he goes there, but also the textures, the colors, the, the fonts, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, everything about it screams to me artistic vision. This is somebody who really, really, thought about every frame and it to me is very very inspiring when you feel yourself in the presence of somebody who is that obsessed with telling the story and the fact that it was both a story and it was one of the craziest wildest rip-roaring journeys of hell that you've ever seen and yet it also was provocative at the same time so the idea that it could work on every single level and wash over you really, really affected me. It, it could also be that I was very young when it came out. I obviously didn't see it when it came out. and But I do remember, I don't know, it must have been like five or something, walking past the theater 
where it was being run in our neighborhood. And I see Clockwork Orange with the font. And then I see Rated X. I'm like, mommy, (laughs) mommy, daddy, what is Rated X? You know, like that sounds scary, you know? And then they explain it. And it was like, oh, you can't see that movie. Keep walking, keep walking. (laughs) So of course, you know, when I finally saw it, you know, I I was like frothing at the mouth, you know, figuring that, wow, my parents didn't want to let me see this. This has to be something unbelievable. So in some ways it, it was jury rigged for me to, uh, you know, enjoy it, but it works on its own. It survives. And, you know, many critics who first saw it reviewed it and they didn't like it or they were confused by it. And then they actually wrote another review, you know, a year later, two years later, like I finally can figure out my feelings on this thing. So, yeah, uh, I saw this film when I was too young to see this film, (laughs) you know, and I was always, fascinated with with film and cinematography and and filmmaking so as a kid watching the film i thought it was awesome for the filmmaking aspects of it the shots were amazing the costumes were incredible the use of music like all all of the technical kubrickian elements just blew my hair back and then as an adult i rewatched it and you know i took my wife to uh, a repertory screening of it. And I was like, oh my God, this movie is deeply disturbing. Now that I was an adult, adult, that I understood like the themes of good versus evil and free will and and all this kind of stuff. I was like, God almighty, my wife's going to divorce me after this. (laughs) But it stands the test of time and it is an absolute masterpiece. And I mean, what a, for Kubrick to, uh, I mean, this was like, this was Kubrick's low budget film, you know, uh, compared to, you know, the other films that he made around this time. It's just, it's mind blowing what he was able to pull off. And, and I'll, I'll tell you a quick story on how low budget it was, because one day I was doing a, a feature doc and local magazine was doing a little feature article on it. And they came to my house to, they sent a photographer to my house. And on my coffee table, I have a coffee table book that is a Kubrick book of, you know, stills from his movies and also behind the scenes shots. So the photographer, who was this uh, European gentleman, an elderly European gentleman, said, started looking through the Kubrick book and said, I think a few of mine are in here. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I was I was Kubrick's photographer for 10 years. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, well, look at this picture. And he showed me, it's a famous behind the scenes shot of Kubrick shooting the scene where uh, Alex has the giant uh, phallic uh, sculpture and he's kind of sexually abusing the woman. It's a horrific scene. And he said in that room was the actress, Kubrick on the camera and him, the photographer, that's it. Yeah. So the only people in that scene and they said Stanley must have done it obviously like 500 times and different angles, but he shot it himself. And this great photographer, Dimitri was photographing it and got all those incredible stills, which you can find online or in, in books, but it, it, it was that low budget. I mean, it was yeah. Stanley and camera and, and the actors. I mean, that was it. Incredible. In the, at least in that scene. Yeah. Awesome. Great first pick, sir. Let's get your second pick. Second pick is a decidedly, <laughs> I guess it's a, it, it's a uh, film maybe on the opposite spectrum. It's a film called Babette's Feast. 
which is a small Danish film. And it is, to me, one of the most incredible examples of how the deeper you go and the more narrow you get in storytelling, the more general you get. You know, when you first start out, you want to make these big sweeping statements and you want to say, oh, I really want to do this and make this point in the film. And yet you learn over time by watching films like this that you can go so narrow. In this case, this is the story of two spinster women in a tiny, remote Swedish town I believe it takes place in the late 1800s. Yeah. And it is just, it's just two women over their lives. And there is one of the biggest twists ever. They get this woman shows up who, due to really strange circumstances, becomes their maid. So these women uh, who live in this tiny, it's like a one and a half room house in a remote village, fishing village, that maybe has eight other houses, end up having this unbelievably sophisticated French housekeeper slash cook. And, you know, there's an incredible twist at the end about this cook and what this cook does to them. But it, it again, it underscores go in deep, know your characters. And it is just, I think it won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film that year. Yeah. Uh, it, should, it should win every award, but it's a small film. Not all films need to be big. And it just, to me, is, is mind-blowing how powerful it is. Yeah, it's a small film in scope and in setting, but at the same time, it's, it's a massive film, uh, you know, thematically. Like, I love films that, like this film, where... We can dissect the film and talk about four or five different themes in this movie at, at length, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's not really just about one thing. And I think that to me is a sign of a great piece of art. This movie blew my hair back. I, I hadn't seen yeah. it. So I just I just recently watched it when I saw it was one of your picks. So thank you for uh, introducing it's, it's it. It's incredible. And I just watched it after not having watched it in five or ten years. And I forgot all of the extra. There's like a whole religious layer yeah. that I never picked up because I was so interested in the story of the two women and this and this chef. And yet that layer of the religion and their connection to religion and also this wistfulness and nostalgia about the roads not taken with some of the men. It's just as you get older, it just like all great works of art, it means something different to you. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it, it kind of takes you by storm because it starts and you're like, well, this is slow moving. Uh, the whole movie's about these two women. Oh, this is not going to be so exciting. And then it kind of hooks you in by the mystery of why these two women have this incredible, sophisticated French chef. And then, you know, it just delivers the powerful ending. So yeah, it's definitely one of the greats. Absolutely. Babette's Feast and A Clockwork Orange are both available on HBO Max to those listening at home who need to check it out. I'm not sure if you, you did that on purpose, sir. No, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually surprised. All right, your third and final pick. My third and final pick is what's on a lot of people's lists always is Chinatown. I'm not, I'm not doing The Godfather because it's just so obvious and it's so obviously brilliant and it's 
you know, uh, the most quoted movie of all time or whatever. But the only thing I learned from it is that everybody connected with The Godfather was a genius. Right. So now with Chinatown, in terms of the craft of filmmaking, that really taught me about storytelling in mm-hmm. such a profound way and particularly the concept of the tip of the iceberg. And and I think that's what Chinatown is if you watch it from a storytelling perspective. At the beginning of the movie, woman comes in to see Jack Nicholson and you just see this, this little tip of the iceberg and you're like, okay, this is a good detective, pot boiler, film noir kind of movie, you get it. And then as the thing goes on, you start going deeper, deeper, and you reveal that there is this giant, massive iceberg underneath that tip, the iceberg of that ties in the, the waterworks of L.A., the history of L.A., corruption in politics and all this stuff. And it is incredible. And it all tied into this idea that I know Robert Town, the, the screenwriter, had from the beginning, the idea that drove him to write it, that rich people can literally get away with murder because they're connected, because they have money, because they could do a lot of it, and they can cover up crimes. And at the beginning, you can't imagine that that's what the film's about. You can't imagine that this has anything to do with the waterworks of, uh, and the history of moving, shifting water in L.A. to bring it to areas that are dry. And it is just the most incredible feat of storytelling, I think, in cinematic history. So uh, that was very inspirational to me for that reason. Well, yeah, widely considered the greatest screenplay of all time, and for good reason. As we talked about with the other two films, it seems to get better with age also. like Not only get better with age, but the more that you watch it, it gets better each time because you you pick up on all these like expertly hidden Easter eggs and, you know, nuanced performance things that, you know, are placed there that, you know, like before you know the story and the grand reveal, like that clue you into certain things. It's just an absolute masterpiece. And, and I think one of the big successes of it is that unlike, let's say, Clockwork Orange and Babette's Feast, which both take a lot of work mm-hmm. and cinema files tend to enjoy. Chinatown, you could have a cinema file watch it and just see a lot of different stuff in it that we kind of often do. But you could also just have somebody that sees one movie a year, just sit back and watch it and just love it. Totally. You know, because it's just so accessible and such a great story. And yet... You and I could talk about it for, you know, 500 hours, you know, about every shot and every twist and every plot point. So, you know, that's really hard to do. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and to, that's amazing. To make something that deft and, and still be a popcorn film, you know. <laughs> and for those who are interested in it, there is, I'm happy to say, I think it was released two years ago. There's a book written about the making of Chinatown, which just came out a couple, like two years ago. And it talks about John Huston meet Roman Polanski, meet Jack Nicholson, meet, you know, and just how this whole thing came together. And I could be wrong, but I think they're actually making a movie of the book about the making of Chinatown Ooh, or a miniseries or something, which I'm really looking forward to. So, Yeah. Well, once again, thank you for doing this. Thanks for your three picks, three classics. And thank you for being here on the show with us, Bruce. Absolutely my pleasure, really. And once again, everybody, Icon, The Restless Billionaire. It's available to stream right now on HBO Max. 
Check it out. Let us know what you think. And thank you all for listening to Film Forward. We'll catch you next time. Our recording engineer and mixer is Anselm Kennedy. The podcast is produced by Anselm, Sonia Maru, and yours truly. Thanks for joining us on Film Forward, and you'll hear us next time.